the buds are going for a walk One strap on my head, then listen to people talk I want to hear about baseball with new ones and puppy and stats Yeah, yeah! Don't want to hear about pitcher wins or about gambling odds Only want to hear about my cat at the calls And the texture of the hair on the arm going out of one's head Hello and welcome to episode 2025 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Aurelia Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I am 100% healthy. How are you? <laughs> I sound froggy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, now it's your turn. <laughs> oh, no coughing already. It's a disaster. Here we are. As I just said to you before we started, I hope yours does not last as long as mine Thank did. You. But our listeners, uh, they put up with a lot they when it do. comes to our vocal quality and our health. I assume they would rather have us podcast uh, at not 100% health, you know, day to day. We still got to get out there. You, mm-hmm. you can't always be in fine form. You just you got to get your reps. You got to take your at-bats. And that's what we're doing here. Or you could take an episode off, but, you know. Yeah. You know? You know, Ben? You know? So I've been told. So I learned two facts Mm. about players that we've talked about a fair amount recently and uh, and for a while now. One being Taylor Ward, and it is related to Taylor Ward's name. So we've talked a lot about how Taylor Ward's name gets mixed up with other players, most notably Tyler Wade, but not exclusively Tyler Wade. So I learned this fact from one of our listeners, Tanner, not Taylor, but Tanner, courtesy of a scoreboard fun fact at a game. And that's that Taylor Ward's wife is also named Taylor. What? Yeah. So Taylor Ward's wife is also Taylor Ward, I assume. I don't know if she took his last name, but uh, there could be two Taylor Wards in the Taylor Ward household, except that there might actually be three because their daughter is named Cameron Taylor Ward. (laughs) Their daughter born last year. So daughter's middle name is Taylor. She might choose to go by Taylor Ward someday, in which case there would be three Taylor Wards in the Taylor Ward households. I don't know how I could not have known this before now, but I'm very happy to know it now. I find myself confused, mostly. (laughs) You know, if you know one thing about me, it's that I tend to, I enjoy human names. You know, there are so Mm -hmm. many of them and a lot of them are really excellent. Yeah, we should use more of them instead of repeating right. some of the same ones over, yeah, over in like the same I, family. <laughs> I just think that there's um, there's potential to do more there and to explore the bounds of names. Now, I will also say this. Some names, Ben, they're not good. Some names, hmm. they're, they're not good. They're spelled oddly. We got a lot of Connors with Ks out here, you know? I had the, mm-hmm. I had the PDP league on before I started... There's a Connor with a K. And I'm like, did we did we think that we needed to do that? What where was the decision made to be like, right. you know, the Connors with C's? Yeah. Was that C not working for us? Like right. were, were people we confused? confused about yeah. how to pronounce I mean Exactly. 
I guess we're all for variety and sure, uh, we yeah. like different types of players and everything. Totally. But if it still sounds like Connor either way, yeah. then what do we really gain from this except confusion? Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, every time I look on Instagram, there are a lot of millennials being, they're just playing fast and loose with vowels in their kids' names in a way that I'm, you know, <laughs> candidly flummoxed by. Um, mm-hmm. But... Uh, you know, maybe it is a name that has particular meaning to them. You know, maybe they are really committed to to Taylor, or or mm-hmm. or maybe Taylor Ward's wife did take his last name. I like to envision that as like thieving it. You know, I stole it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then when they named their daughter, maybe they opted for. Is it spelled the same? The two Taylors. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I was gonna say like maybe, and this isn't dispositive on this idea, I guess, but like maybe. They were like, oh, well, we'll name her in such a way that that um, her mom's name is in her name since her mom's mm-hmm. last name isn't in her name. Like, maybe that was part of the thought process. Could be, unless it's a, a Madison Bumgarner dated a girl named Madison Bumgarner situation. Right. And they were both named Taylor, Taylor Ward, Ward before they met. But yeah. <laughs> it's probably not the case. Probably not the case. But, you know, um, wilder things have happened. Again, we got Connors with K's. We got we got E's and I's and Y's and names yeah, that I just fact, think don't need them. Their daughter Cameron's name, that's Cameron with a Y oh, instead of an O. Yeah, okay. So like look, I just <laughs> I don't know, man. Like the combination of Instagram and home goods did something to our brains, and I don't know that it was for the for the better. And here I am. I'm I don't want to make fun of this child, you know, it's not mm-hmm. her decision what her name nope. is at this stage. Mm-mm. <laughs> Not until Boy. she chooses to go by Taylor someday. I don't know if I like this Cameron with a Y. I yeah. want to be Taylor Ward. <laughs> why is there? Why is there? A, why? 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 You know, know, literally. Is, why is is Cameron with an O more male coded traditionally? Uh, maybe and that should maybe, be true. And I, I don't know. Anyway, that's one thing I learned. Another thing I learned is about Ellie De La Cruz and his brother, okay. his twin brother, in fact. Okay. Now. If you tell this me is... his name is Ellie, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> no, but this is not what I learned. This is fake news oh. that I could have learned if I had not known better. But oh. I, I googled Ellie De La Cruz's twin brother because I okay. saw a tweet that he had a twin brother and that there was an interesting fact about him, which I will share in a moment. But okay. first, in an attempt to confirm it, which I don't think I needed to do because the source was literally the Reds. I think it was a, a mm. Reds media relations person. But I googled Ellie De La Cruz's twin brother. Okay. And the first result that comes up on Google, which is possibly diminished these days, this may be another sign of the search engine apocalypse, but the first result, like up in the little top window area, Uh is from a website called airportsindia.org.in, which sounds very reliable and like an authoritative source about (laughs) information about Ellie De La Cruz. Sure, yeah. (laughs) So... What it says on the Google results page is, well, I'll just, I'll read you uh, some excerpts from the page itself. Okay. It says, Ellie De La Cruz's twin brother makes waves in Major League Baseball. So, wow, did not know that Ellie De La Cruz, who's certainly making waves, yeah. uh, didn't know his twin brother was also making waves. According to this website, in a historic moment for baseball, Ellie De La Cruz and his twin brother, O'Neill Cruz, oh, made their Major no. League debuts. 
in the 2023 season, which is wrong on multiple levels. Oh, yeah. There's... <laughs> not only are they not brothers or twins, but O'Neill Cruz debuted, debuted last, last year. year famously. Right. Born on January 11, 2002, in Sabano Grande de Boya, Dominican Republic, these twin powerhouses oh. are now playing for the Cincinnati Reds and Pittsburgh Pirates, respectively. Oh. Again, a, a mixture of, of accurate and inaccurate yeah. information. Ellie joined the Reds on June 6, 2023, okay, and O'Neill joined the Pirates on April 29th, 2023. Mm. Um, no, <laughs> no. Then there's a like a subhead and another sure. section below this, the Genesis of Greatness. Oh. And it says, the De La Cruz brothers started playing baseball at an early age. <laughs> Their remarkable talent led them to sign with major league teams as international free agents in 2018. Again, one of them did. Yeah. Uh, Ellie signed in 2018. O'Neill signed, I think, in 2015. He signed earlier. I think earlier. that might be right. It was earlier. <laughs> Ellie inked a deal with the Cincinnati Reds for $65,000. I think that is accurate. Yes. That was his signing bonus. Yes. While O'Neill landed a contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates for a whopping $1.5 million, which I believe is inaccurate <laughs> if uh, going by his baseball prospectus cuts contract info, which says he signed for a $950,000 signing bonus, not $1.5 million. <laughs> and it goes on in that vein. So the next section, a sneak peek into Ellie's career. In 2019, Ellie De La Cruz made his professional debut with the Dominican Summer League Reds, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on. Then it says O'Neill's rise to stardom. O'Neill Cruz, Ellie De La Cruz's twin brother, no. be <laughs> began his professional career in 2019 with the Gulf Coast League Pirates. Again, no, no, no. he did not. He began his professional career in, I think, uh, 2016, right? It, it was uh, a while before that. So I don't know what's happening here. I don't know if this is some sort of uh, AI experiment gone Ooh, wrong. maybe. Or if this is just some sort of spam or something or someone just developed a website to mislead people who Googled Ellie De La Cruz's twin brother just to play a prank on them. Yeah. But I kind of enjoyed just like the mix of, of inaccurate and accurate and just the confidence with which this site sure. airportsindia.org.in is pronouncing things about these players' career. It, it concludes, promising future ahead. Experts predict that the De La Cruz brothers are the next big thing in Major League Baseball. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a yeah. weird... Very weird. <laughs> ben, what a strange thing you've stumbled upon. Well, and it's like, so, I mean, obviously this is just incorrect. Yeah. I, I get being like, you know, who else is tall? Right, sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, like, I get that part, but, like, they don't look, apart from their height, like, they don't mm -hmm. look alike, you know, and not all twins are identical, but they, like, mm -hmm. they don't look related. Right. And... It, it's, they are a few years apart in age. Yeah. <laughs> which would be, all identical twins are, I think, the same age, you know, approximately. So that is disqualifying. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a lot about this that is obviously wrong. But I see in here, before I realized that this was all just a bunch of nonsense, I was going to mm -hmm. be like, is Ellie's twin brother also very tall? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, interesting that you ask that oh, question, no. actually, because that is what led me down this road. Okay. And by the way, I should mention that airportsindia.org.in, it does have a, a byline at the end. Like there is a name of a person who supposedly wrote this. Again, don't know if it's a real person. But the reason I ended up on this website yeah. was because I saw a tweet 
about Ellie De La Cruz's actual twin brother. Oh, my and gosh. And this was from Jamie Ramsey, who's the Cincinnati Reds director of media relations and uh, presumably would be in a position to know. Yeah. He tweeted, one of my favorite facts about Ellie De La Cruz is that he has a twin brother who is five foot eight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This is uh, a, a true fact. This is an actual a fact. A true fact. And uh, an, there so was a— a fact is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and there's a picture from one of their Instagrams, which I will link to, and I just linked to you, which oh, does okay. provide photo evidence oh, of okay. one De La Cruz twin who is— Oh, my uh, gosh! <laughs> —significantly wow, larger look at that. than and the like, other— these these two young men standing next to each other look related. They do. I I wouldn't say. Oh, you must be identical twins. No, but like they it, look. They it's look like well, Ellie well, looks like a more stretched out version yeah, of, of like, Pedro, allow me to his say brother. This. They look more related than Ellie De La Cruz and O'Neill yes. Cruz look. Yes, yes, I guess so. Yeah, if if you were to see those players from afar. You might be more inclined to say, oh, th- those guys must be brothers. They're both right. giants. But right. but if you actually look at the facial features right. and everything. Their faces yes. don't look the same. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't want to attribute to a person I have never met, like, <laughs> psychological scarring. And perhaps <laughs> I am being influenced by the fact that Ellie De-, De La Cruz's brother is literally, like, flipping the bird to the camera in this photo. <laughs> but do you think that he's, like... What the hell, man? Like, what the? What, I, yeah, what you, the? I, I hope he has a healthy attitude about this, but but yeah. it it must be strange. I mean, it's yeah. got to be strange in some ways, and probably very nice in some sure. ways to, to be an identical sibling to start with. But if you're an identical sibling who is that far from identical, right? <laughs> like well, I, there, you know, there's a, tr- a term for that, and they're just yep, they're fraternal. Fraternal, terms. but 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 they're not though. They're uh, well, I, I guess they are, right? I mean, I I had. Uh, Wait, do we need to clarify to you what a twin is? Well, they're different than <laughs> brothers, Ben. It right, is a sub. You know, it's like um, squares and rectangles. <laughs> right. I am married to a, a twin. A I don't know what a, a sororal twin. I don't know what you call oh, it. Yeah, is there a separate? Is there a separate know. term for that? Yeah, not identical, but. But, uh, you know, a resemblance, uh, certainly closer in height than the De La Cruz brothers. But I dated a girl in college who was an identical twin, except that her twin really was not very much like her. And I was very confused by that at the time, Uh, like significantly smaller, not, you know, nine inches different. But but the girl I I dated was like significantly taller than her sister and kind of looked different. And at the time, I felt like this was false advertising or something. I I was like, I was led to believe that identical twins were largely identical, at least physically. And it turns out that's not always the case. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, you know, sometimes uh, an identical sibling is born a lot larger or smaller. It has to do with like the connection to the placenta and mm. sort of like nourishment in the womb. And then there are other epigenetic factors that can dictate uh, what you look like and how tall you are and all of that. So, so yes, it, it probably not the case that 
they're <laughs> identical, but I, I have known identical twins who have uh, varied right. quite widely in size, even. So, but yeah, this is uh, this is quite wild. I asked uh, Trent Rosecrans, and as far as he knows, Pedro de la Cruz is not a professional athlete or mm. or an athlete of of note. But uh, I do not know what his attitude is in relation to <laughs> being so much smaller yeah, than uh, his extremely large brother. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, like, here they are in a photo together, so maybe they just are, are thick as thieves and it, it doesn't matter, but it's like in the hierarchy of sibling resentments, potential sibling resentments, I, I want to mm-hmm. clarify, is it a bigger issue to be very tall relative to your sibling or to be a professional athlete relative to your sibling? And in, in, in De La Cruz's case, like, they're not unrelated concepts. Yeah, both although, apply, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, right. yeah, I wonder... I wonder what that's what that's like, man. Yeah. How many well, people in the population have dated twins twice? Not the same from <laughs> yeah, the same. That's, that's uh, yeah. I never really thought about that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I have a, a type in that sense, but it did happen that way. Yeah. But yeah, this is. Uh, I am an only child, so I know nothing of sibling resentments mm. and rivalries from personal experience. But you'd think that this could potentially be the cause of some sort of friction, or I don't know. But but hopefully not. Hopefully you know? not. Hopefully not. Yeah, yeah, I think that like um in in my experience of being a sibling. I would imagine that being very different might actually afford you an opportunity for a, um, a healthier uh, relationship because then you're forging, you're each forging your own path, right? You're doing, right, yeah. you're doing different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you get to like make your own way and mark on the world, as opposed to like if his younger brother was a professional athlete, and then you're like, well. I mean, you're not going to be like Ellie, and then mm-hmm. and then that can uh, worm its way. And although it doesn't have to, right? There are plenty of siblings who I think are c- closer in their professional endeavors and end up having lo- lovely relationships. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe as a twin, you're you are happy to have the difference, even if you don't have a strong um, physical resemblance, mm-hmm. uh, just because people probably make all kinds of silly assumptions about like how similar you're going to be that might not have any relationship to who you each are as people like that. Right. Uh, that's probably quite um, tricky at times to navigate, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about baseball giants, can we spend a moment here on Ari Paris? Who sure. is, he's, he's just a, a he's cheat good. code at this point, yeah. basically. Like he was the top pitching prospect. It's yes. not a surprise that yeah. he is pitching extremely well, but Gosh, he's good. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, really he's really very good. He's uh I mean he's six foot eight. He throws a hundred, he releases the ball from like what seven feet in front of the mound or whatever. Like so it's ridiculous extension paired with great velocity, almost Randy Johnson-esque mix of those things. And he is off to one of the best starts in recent memory, right? I mean, first nine starts, 1.34 ERA. That is the lowest ERA over a player's first nine starts since Steve Rogers for the 1973 Expos. Uh, Of course, uh, Steve Rogers, he threw 75 innings in those nine starts. Yuri Perez has thrown 47 innings in those nine starts, and they're managing his workload carefully, right? He he usually throws uh, 80, 90 pitches, but 
gosh, like he is just dominant and overpowering and he has all these different weapons. He has the fastball that is thrown really fast and maybe doesn't get quite as many whiffs as you'd think, but then he compensates by getting lots of whiffs with everything else. Like the curveball is unhittable and it's just, it's rare for a 20-year-old and just barely 20-year-old pitcher to make the majors and get significant time at this point just because teams tend to be so careful with young pitchers for good reason in many cases. But he is absolutely dominant and it's not like we're suddenly talking about the Marlins as much as we've been talking about the Reds since Ellie arrived, but... I don't know. Maybe we should. Maybe we should. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just uh, pretty dazzled by what I've seen so far from him. Yeah. I think that they're going to have some some tricky choices to make here because yes. they are not they are not in first place in their division um, because the Braves just are refusing <laughs> to lose uh, yep. or at least refusing to lose very much of late. But mm-hmm. you know they're 45 and 34, and you know at some point here they're going to have to make some decisions about how often they want him to throw and how they balance that against the desire to like be competitive in in a playoff race which isn't a wild thing to say about no. them at this point right like they're in a wild card spot as we are recording today in fact they are in the first wild card spot i believe so you know how do you balance wanting to sustain that performance over the back half of the season and hopefully make a return to the postseason with the fact that like Yuri has never thrown more than I think what seventy seven innings in a season. Yeah, he's he's actually he's at his career high right now, a season high. He threw seventy eight in twenty twenty one in his first professional season, and he is now at exactly seventy eight thus far between double A and the majors so far this year. So so that's uh, the downside, I guess, of of taking good care of young pitchers and protecting them is that uh, when they break out and you bring them up, it's uh, they don't have much of a workload built up there. There's uh, this concept called the injury nexus, which I don't know if it really holds up to modern scrutiny, but the idea was basically that when you're a young pitcher, you're more subject to injury and you're still developing. And so there's this window where if you're overworked during that time, it's even more dangerous and he's certainly still within that window. But yeah, like... I guess we're probably not at the point where you do a Strasbourg style shutdown. Like, I don't know if that made sense at the time. And I don't know if it would make sense now. It seems like to shut a guy down and then have to ramp him up again. Right. Could especially, have its own negative consequences, right. one would think. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're ramping up again in preparation for the playoffs, if right. they were still in the chase there. And then you're going from inactivity to max velocity and high pressure. That just that seems bad. That seems maybe worse than just doing what you're doing. So maybe this is the most responsible thing that they could do, just kind of managing him, making sure he's not overworked in any given game or from game to game, giving him adequate rest, but having him remain a member of that rotation. But if they keep going, I mean, once we get to the end of the season, he will have probably like doubled. Yeah, right? blown through, right? Yeah, so I, I don't know if that's – and then, you know, if you're fortunate enough to make the playoffs, uh, is he completely gassed by that point? So uh, I don't know what else you do. He's like too good to to not 
use him or just sit him down. So I, I guess you just got to keep using him on a fairly tight leash from game to game and hope for the best. It's a tricky business because I think that we are better equipped. I mean, not you and I, but like teams <laughs> mm-hmm. are better equipped than they have ever been to, you know, at least be able to register the sort of ancillary signs that one might see that would indicate fatigue, right? So like velocity decline and changes in command and control and, you know, you know, consistency of delivery and release point and such. So like they, I, I think that they are in a spot where they can say, Hey, like we're noticing X, Y, and Z factor that make us think that you're fatiguing. Maybe you take a you know, you take a turn off through the rotation. Maybe we throw you every six days instead of every five. You know, like there are different strategies that they could deploy. And we never know, like, what is the pitch that's going to be a problem. But I think he has been fairly healthy throughout his young minor league career. So it's just, you know, it's an odd, but he's so spindly, you know? And I Mm -hmm. do feel, even though he's, you know, he is among this group of, young dudes up in the majors now who are like built like construction cranes he's still you know he's still kind of spindly and so i i feel more nervous for the spindly guys yeah (laughs) which is i don't know maybe that's a silly way to think about it because it's like you're are you more susceptible to fatigue are you better positioned because your body can't like pull itself apart by the sheer force of your own limbs and and musculature like i clearly am um, ben, not a doctor, I think is one of the takeaways from this conversation. But I hope that they are, and I'm sure that they are monitoring very closely. And like, you know, he's so young and he can be so good for them for so long. I'm sure that they are conscious of sort of wanting to protect future Yuri and the future Marlins and, and not wanting to sacrifice that at the expense of the present. But when you find yourself in surprising contention, like, I, I think it would be awfully tempting to say, eh. Just go, but you know, I I hope that they won't make that sound because what a bad sound it was, you know. Yeah. Apart from anything else. Speaking of spindly pitchers, Tristan McKenzie is spindly. hurt, right? He hurt his yeah. elbow UCL issues, which is never great. <sighs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, you have that kind of the prototypical power pitcher right. build, as they say. Yes. And bodies come in all shapes and sizes, yeah, even like, of successful pitchers. Right. So yeah. I don't know. Like I could imagine that being built more solidly might perhaps uh, help you not wear down or something over the course of a season, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe if you're putting a lot of strain on your lower body, landing on it over and over with a, a heavier load there, maybe that could wear you down over time. I would guess that in terms of just the strain on your UCL specifically, I don't know that it would make all that much difference. I mean, maybe if you don't have enough like lower body leg strength to sort of take some of the the strain in in your delivery and it's just all arm maybe that would be bad but i could imagine it just being kind of a case by case basis thing but with the marlins now i mean with perez doing what he's doing and then with arise doing what he's been doing all season long like they're not as fun i guess maybe top to bottom as the reds uh you know maybe like if alcantara were doing better then they'd have a, a really great young rotation i guess the lineup is like not 
quite as fun fully as as the Reds lineup is these days. But but just even those two standouts, just you know, checking the box score every day to see what Arise did, and then seeing what Perez did. That's a lot of fun too. And and they've still been outscored by 15 runs on the season. The Marlins, like it's, it's still not clear how good they are. I mean, much like the Reds have been outscored by 22 runs, right? And the Marlins are 45 and 34. The Mets have almost the same run differential and are 35 and 43, right? And uh, are currently like a smoking ruin, which maybe we should talk about for a moment. But like the the Phillies too basically have the same run differential as the Marlins. They're 40 and 37 and a few games back of the Marlins. So we talked a lot early in the year when the Marlins were undefeated in one run games about that. They're still 19 and five in one, one run games. So it's still a very strange season. And I guess I have been reluctant to to buy in and like catch Marlins fever or anything because I, I just, I guess I'm even less uh, confident maybe that they can keep it up than I am in yeah. the Reds. So yeah. yeah. Although, gosh, even even in that month where the Reds went, what like fifteen and eight, they mm-hmm. still, they emerged from that month with like a plus seven run. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like <laughs> even when it's going really well in terms of the win loss column, like mm-hmm. it's there's fluke to be had. Yeah. There's flukiness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I. Speaking of a rise, I I wanted to play a clip that I sent you before we started recording. This is the other day. So Luis Arise evidently called his home run that he hit, which I guess is noteworthy because he doesn't hit a lot of home runs. So if you're someone who hits a lot and you predicted it, well, it's a a higher percentage play for you to predict that you will hit a home run. Arise has hit three this year. So for him to predict it, it's maybe more impressive and, well, I'll just play the clip from his manager, Skip Schubacher, here. Arias, a home run and the bat flip, but something. He told Pipe that he was going to hit a home run that next at bat. So he hasn't done that all year. He did it. And again, he, the guy just tells you what he's going to do every single time, and he does it. And I, I just I kind of a loss for what's happening because it's almost July, and he's still calling his shot. It's just it's wild. Uh, I don't even... I don't even know what to say. I mean, I said... So uh, what I found amazing about this is is not just that he predicted the home run, because, again, everyone's uh, predicting everything constantly. For all we know, he does predict a home run every time, and he just rarely is right. But but what Schumacher said is that he predicts what he's going to do every time up, he said, and then he does it. He he didn't say he predicted he's going to hit a home run every time, but he says he basically, like, calls his shot every time or he like predicts what he's going to do in every plate appearance probably hyperbole but but what if he actually did what if he actually predicted the outcome of every plate appearance because as good as he is and you know hitting as close to 400 he is and getting on base as close to 500 as he is he still makes an out most of the time he comes to the plate And so if he were actually predicting what he's going to do every time, then he would very regularly be saying, I think I'm going to roll over and ground a second here. (laughs) I think think I'm going to pop out to left here. Uh, I think I'm going to ground out to third this time. And even if he did that, and even if he were right, I guess you'd, you'd almost still have to send him up there. Unless it were like the last at bat of the game, and if he made an out, 
it would be over and and you knew he was definitely going to make it out because he's uh, unerring in his predictions. Like if he predicts in the first plate appearance of a game that he's going to ground to short, well, you still have to leave him in there. You can't pinch hit for Luis Arise. He's your best hitter. He's, I think, by WRC Plus, despite the lack of power, the best hitter in the National yeah. League this year. Yeah. So if, if not, he's at the he's near the top of that leaderboard. Yeah. yeah. So even if he were to predict half the time that he was going to make it out, well, I mean, you'd still have to leave him in there because uh, he makes an out less often than just about anyone else does these days so it would uh, still be useful but i would enjoy that i mean players are always predicting positive outcomes yeah. so i'd love it if if someone said you know i i just i don't think i can hit this guy i i think i'm gonna <laughs> think i'm gonna go down swinging here i think i'm gonna take strike three looking i think i'm just gonna you know ground to think i'm gonna just tap one back to the pitcher this time i you never seem to hear that <laughs> so i want more stories about predicting failure i'm trying to decide if it reinforces or undermines like the lore that is starting to emerge around him because we are generally mm, i don't want to say skeptical realistic about like how much even guys who have really good sort of barrel variability within the zone can point and shoot basically when they're up there you know um this is part of why the collective baseball intelligentsia has been like well it's you can't just tell them like well, just hit them where they ain't, you know, like in response to the shift. It's like, that's really hard. Even very good hitters are still in a reactive posture. And so their ability to like target where on the field they want to send the ball is going to be somewhat limited. Arise does seem to have some degree more innate skill to do that than a lot of other hitters. And so it's like, is he just able to look at a guy's arsenal and have an understanding of what he's likely to be offered and say, Hey, I can't, I can't do it this time. But then other times he's able to, does that make us believe him more, even though the result isn't good? I, I don't know. Like, I think that it's been going on long enough that the way we talk about like Joey Votto's ability to properly assess the strike zone I don't know. We need to do the hitting equivalent for a rise. We're, we're getting mm-hmm. into that territory where he needs to be talked yeah. about in the same hushed, reverent yeah. tones. You know, I think we're I think we're there. Yeah, he is, by the way, one point of WRC plus ahead of Ronald Acuna as we speak here on Tuesday. So doing it in a dramatically different way. Acuna's second in batting average in the majors, and he's not within 70 points of Luis Arise. That's how much of an outlier arises. And yet, you know, obviously he's hitting for power and he's uh, running wild on the bases, etc. So it's a very different 160 WRC plus than Luis Arise's 161. And overall, maybe a more valuable player, but uh, but hitting-wise, it's, it's hard to have an empty 400 batting average. I mean, you know, Arise, he he walks sometimes. Uh, He certainly walks more often than he strikes out. But it's hard to be basically batting 400 and slugging under 500. And yet, even if you do that, it's hard not to be a 400 hitter and not be a very productive hitter. (laughs) Just, you know, despite the discounting of batting average, if the batting average is high enough, then you're going to be good. And I was uh, talking about that on Hang Up and Listen this week. It, It came up. 
if he were to sustain this somehow almost miraculously for the rest of the season, like if he hit 400 and he finished what two war, let's say behind Ronald Acuna, what would the MVP results look like? I have no oh, idea. Be so rude to Corbin Carroll, my God, Ben. Well, yes, or Corbin Carroll. You know, anyone, anyone other than Arise who, let's say, tops him in war. Because when I looked, like, he was not close to the top of the war leaderboard, even the National League war leaderboard. He's, he's 25th now as we speak on Tuesday. And in the National League, he is 12th. And, you know, he's 1.3 wins by replacement behind Ramal Acuna, which is simultaneously not a big difference and, and a pretty big percentage difference. And so if that were to continue by the end of the season, if he were, say, three war ahead of Arise, but Arise batted 400, would we have a contentious conversation about awards voting like i think we're past you know people warring about batting average oh and, man that's yeah. adorable <laughs> i mean okay maybe i'm in a, a sabermetric bubble here i think a I, little bit i i think part of why i'm just so able to purely enjoy louisa rise is that at least up until now no one's been trying to turn him into more than he is like no one's trying to say he's the best player in baseball they're saying he's like a freakishly talented contact hitter and and hitter for average, and he's got preternatural hand-eye coordination and bat-to-ball ability and everything, but not then kind of having a halo effect uh, extension of that to he's amazing in all facets of the game, right? Because he's not fast, which makes it more impressive that he hits for average the way that he does. He's not like beating out tons of infield hits or anything. And the fact that he doesn't walk an enormous amount or hit for power means that he is just so subject to the vagaries of batting average on balls in play that makes it harder for him in some ways, although making tons of contact maybe makes it easier. But no one's trying to make a case for a rise over Acuna, let's say, at this point. But if we got to the end of the season and Arise had hit 400, which would probably be the story of the season, that would probably be the most memorable thing that happened during the regular season, Shohei Otani's heroics aside, right? And so if the most memorable thing from this regular season was that was the year Luis Arise batted 400, and yet he ended up three war or whatever behind the National League leader – would he be the favorite for the MVP? Would he get strong support? Would there be anger over like the sabermetricians who are trying to rob us of the great story of uh, Luis Reiser diminish his accomplishments or anything? Or have we gotten past that and everyone can just kind of put it in perspective and say this is an amazing accomplishment? And it also does not mean he's the best player in the league. When was the last time someone had a WRC plus, even remotely as high as his with an ISO that starts with a zero. <laughs> yeah. like, when was the last time that happened? Um, so I think a couple of things. I mean, I, I do think that in general, even the folks who I think tend to view the game through sort of a more traditional lens than we do can appreciate like the totality of a player's game. Um, and so... Arise might fall 
away from, you know, whether it's Acuna or Carroll, you know, assuming that things sort of stay as they are uh, on the position player side in the NL, you know, he might kind of fall away by virtue of the fact that like, Ronald Acuna Jr. has 35 stolen bases, right? And Corbin Carroll has 23. And both of those guys hit for considerably more power uh, than Arise does, even though Carroll's a a smaller statured guy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's not like, you know, particularly if it's Acuna who ends up being his primary competition, like he's hitting above 300. So Mm -hmm. it's not like he's, you know, hitting 220, but doing a a lot of other really great stuff and is going to end up with a case that is offensive to traditionalists. Like if he's Mm a 300 hitter with, you know, 40 plus stolen bases and is, you know, playing reasonable defense and hitting for power, like, he has a an MVP case that looks very traditional, even if it doesn't involve a batting average that starts with a four, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he just happens to be really good at everything. So I think that that will help to sort of assuage some of the um, traditionalists who want to acknowledge what an incredible accomplishment hitting 400 would be, but probably can acknowledge, like, you know, come on, mm-hmm. like, relative mm-hmm. to his closest competition, he's he's a step down and they are able to make sort of a traditional case. So there's that part. And I am like hopeful that that will, you know, that will be the thing that sort of dictates the direction of the discourse where we can have the conversation and it'll be fun to have it because I do want to make sure that Arise like gets the recognition that this thing should come with. Cause he is an exceptional hitter, even if he isn't hitting for power, but also we really like to make up a guy to get mad at. We just, we love to, we love to make up a guy, Ben. I mean, not yeah. you and me. I mean, sometimes you and me. Well, I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I make up a guy to get mad at. It, you know, it's been known to happen. But I think that there will probably be somewhere a column written about how the sabermetricians are ruining things and it's so hard as if it's not hard to hit 328 and, you know, launch 17 home runs against today's pitching. Like that's really hard to do too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic maybe that the, that the primary discourse will be around like, wow, look at all of these really great hitters in the NL and they're great in different ways when we're evaluating their MVP cases. Like, the ranking is, you know, pretty obvious, but that doesn't mean that, you know, whether it's a second or third place finish that Arise won't be worthy of the, that. Like, he's he's really great, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that having that, you know, diversity within the ecosystem of the game is really good for the game. In some ways, it, like, makes the conversation more, I think, fruitful when the contrast is as sharp as it is. You know, some years we have guys, we have a bunch of guys who are all really good and they're separated by fractions of wins. And, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of are, are doing the same kind of thing in terms of their profile. And then you're like, how do I justify <laughs> the choices here? When the contrasts are sharper, I think that it makes for a more fu- fruitful conversation mm-hmm. and in some ways a harder vote maybe because you're not able to do apples to apples but it's also an easier vote because you're not like trying to pick apart minute differences in the same profile. I don't know, man. Like mm-hmm. we'll we'll see where it goes. All of this, of course, is predicated on his ability to actually hit 400. <laughs> yes. And if he ends the year hitting 370, then I think it's 
you know, he's not gonna, yeah, he's not gonna be maybe not even a top three finisher. Um, it really only becomes a question yeah. if on the last day Just of the disgrace, season, disgrace, really, right? Only bets 370, right? Like, who has time, you yeah. know, who even has time for someone who only do, does that? But like, if he mm-hmm. ends the year below 400, I think that this this issue kind of takes care of itself. But, but mm-hmm. if he mm-hmm. doesn't, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it is incredible in retrospect, though, that he was not more highly rated as a prospect. I'm not saying that I saw this coming, but if you look at his minor league batting lines, he was basically doing this all along, right? I mean, there was never a time when he was not hitting for a high average. His first professional season as a 17-year-old in 2014 in the Dominican Summer League, he batted 348, right? He he batted uh, 331 lifetime in the minors. He batted 338 in his brief time in AAA. He batted 318 in AA. Like, he did this... All along, as soon as he made the majors, uh, he did that from day one to right his rookie year, 2019. He batted 334 that season in 92 games, and yet he was never a top 100 guy anywhere. I don't think any of the major places, at least. Uh, just looking back at the 2019 Fangrass top prospects list, not to blow up Eric and Kylie here, no. but he was rated 12th directly behind Williams Astadio. <laughs> <laughs> who was How 11th. And uh, look, uh, I'm sure I would have had Astadio higher as well. He was certainly higher in my heart. But, and part of it was that Astadio was already in the majors and uh, Arise was in double-A at the time, although again, he would make the majors that season and bat 334. But he always had this ability and because he was not like a big, super athletic, super toolsy guy, And maybe because he breaks the mold, because it's a low batting average era for so many reasons, and players aren't prioritizing batting average the way that they used to, and so scouts probably aren't either, and you're going to have a tough time projecting someone as just a batting average savant in this era. Like he's an outlier and outliers always give scouts fits, you know, unless they're outliers because they're giants and they are (laughs) super fast, like Ellie De La Cruz, who I I realized he also signs autographs, sometimes the fastest man in the world. Oh, yeah. Which is wonderful. Not yeah. the fastest man in baseball, which in the world. he might have a, a legitimate claim to, but in the world, <laughs> like of anyone, you know, all the sprinters, anyone, uh, Ellie De La Cruz, fastest man in the world. I just, you got to love the confidence, I guess. It would be uh, entertaining and, and amusing and fascinating if he were actually the fastest man in the world. And uh, that might break baseball in some ways that I think we've talked about in the past when we were wondering whether Billy Hamilton would be the fastest man in the world. He wasn't anyway. That was a, a side note. What I was saying is that if you're Luis Arise, like your tools don't jump off the page to the same extent and your your dimensions don't. And so people probably thought, well, he's not fast and he's defensively limited. You know, you can stick him at a few positions, but he's not necessarily going to excel at any of them. And I think in that 2019 prospects list, they projected him to basically be, you know, because of the lack of of power and everything, he likely projects as a bat-first utility guy, but there's a chance he makes sufficient contact to be a regular at second. (laughs) So that chance paid off. He 
does make sufficient contact to be a regular at seconds. But yeah, it just, you know, he was unusual. And so scouts uh, sort of missed on him to some extent. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when you're thinking about like the bucket of sort of um, permissible misses, it, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, like that kind of miss is is definitely in that bucket because mm-hmm. so often it isn't enough. Like it just, mm-hmm. the overwhelming uh, majority of the time, it's not enough. It's not enough right. to be able to do that. Um, and I think that, you know, being able to have like sort of that control and variability that is in the way that Eric might describe it, like sentient is mm-hmm. really hard. Yeah, Nick Madrigal batted three fifty nine right. in AAA and right. three nineteen in the minors. You could yes. come up with other examples of right. of contact uh, high average guys where it just didn't or hasn't translated. Right, and so I think that it gives you a data point that helps you to clarify like what is the you know the edge case scenario where this is enough to not only like bolster the profile such that you're an everyday player, but one of the more valuable players in baseball and certainly one of the better hitters. And you can learn from that, but it's also hard to be able to say, well, yeah, this, this guy, you know, this mm-hmm. guy, that guy's just like that guy. They're the right. same guy. Cause it's a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a lot. There are so many guys and some of them are named Connor with a K. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So that's been really fun to watch and less fun to watch, uh, are the division Mets of the Marlins, and and that's uh, the Mets. So man, the Mets. You just uh, sent me a tweet. I did. That Mets owner Steve Cohen tweeted while we've been talking here, and he has uh, pronounced, "I will be doing a press conference tomorrow before the game. You will get it from me straight." <laughs> Do we think that Buck Showalter is getting fired for? I wonder because I was. It's kind of rude to like announce you're gonna do it and then make the guy wait a day. I mean, yeah, yeah. Steve <laughs> Cohen, famous for decorum, never rude. This would be the very first time. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna bring up a recent Buck Showalter tweet that was, uh, or quote, it would. Be I was gonna funny say if Buck Showalter were tweeting Bucks on Twitter. I'm shocked yeah, by that. Uh, yeah, you would probably know about that. But Tim Healy, who covers the Mets for Newsday, oh <laughs> he tweeted couple days ago, mm. in response to questions about the Mets Tuesday starter, a dodging Buck Showalter said, what is it with knowing about things before they happen? Do you want to know about when you're going to die? <laughs> Maybe Steve Cohen just told him. Well, yeah. At least in a professional context. Yeah. Be. I feel bad for Francisco Lindor, but that's <laughs> tremendous content. Yes. Yeah. It's going really quite badly. Mm-hmm. Um and not just in a fluky, oh, the, you can see that this is actually a very good team and they're just getting unlucky. They're getting babbit to death. They have weird sequencing issues. It's, uh, it's not been there. They're 35 and 43 as we are recording today. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, Showalter, and I, I wouldn't presume to outline all of them because um, the Mets fans listening, I'm sure have a catalog, but like seems to be making some, some strange choices. Like he's making mm-hmm. weird choices uh, with the, the lineup and you never want to get too invested in that. Cause like we know that sometimes it doesn't matter, but also he's not always playing his best guys. And then like the way he's mm-hmm. using his relievers also seems quite odd and very prickly. It seems mm-hmm. to be quite prickly. Um, in a way that I can't imagine, like, resonates with his dudes. 
Did you watch their meltdown against the Phillies, Ben? Did you, yeah, did you see was, this? That was not pretty. <laughs> it was like shocking kind of really mm-hmm. to see them. They're not playing good ball right now. And um, they've, you know, they've been at times like error prone in the field and it's, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like things are going well over there. And, you know, we, we saw last year with the, the Phillies um, that, you, you know, all those things can be true. And then you move on from your manager and, mm-hmm. and the vibe shifts dramatically, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not as if they have to be totally dead in the water, but also I am, mm-hmm. I'm struggling to, to think of how it gets a lot better because, you know, they don't seem like they're in a position to really do much deadline-wise, at least from the, the minor league side of things. And they're old, you know, yep. particularly mm-hmm. their pitchers, Ben, yep. famously. extremely old. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not great. It's not going well. Yeah, it's sort of the flip side of, of the Reds or the Orioles or these teams where you get an infusion of youth and maybe they accelerate the timeline because uh, those guys click and they come up and they hit the ground running. And then with the Mets, uh, again, they won 100 games last year. They either kept the guys that they had or they replaced them with other high-profile guys. And yes, Edwin Diaz got hurt, but they still had a ton of talent. But when you're that old, when you're the oldest team in the majors, there's just inevitably going to be greater collapse risk. I'm not saying I saw a Mets collapse coming, but I think of the good teams, uh, the top tier teams, as you would have identified them coming into the season, the top projected teams, you might have said things could go wrong here. You know, if, if they can't keep this ancient rotation healthy or if it's healthy but not as good as it was. I mean, you were basically banking on Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer remaining among the very best pitchers in baseball at an advanced age, and that has not been the case this season, even when they have been available. So when you're starting with with that, that's just not great. And then you have other guys who are underperforming. I mean, Francisco Lindor, right, who's, who's signed for forever, He's he's not necessarily the problem with the Mets, but he's not necessarily part of the solution these days either. So there's just a, a lot of weaknesses there, and their playoff odds are down to about 12%. It's just it's not looking great. So Steve Cohen has uh, resisted firing people and uh, ranting, but he's going to give it to us straight on Wednesday. So we'll see what that entails. He he just recently issued a press conference about the Mets being chosen to play in what London next year. And the statement said something about, uh, did I say press conference or, or press release? But he, he said something about like looking forward to introducing the Mets and their never say die attitude to, to, to the UK. It's like, that was not giving it to us straight. Are we talking about the same team here? So now he's going to give it to us straight. They, they might say die. That might be their attitude now. They might say, I'm very tired. You know, <laughs> they could say, I am a team that is in its late 30s and sneezed and screwed up its back just to like pick a thing that happened to me yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you've conceded that you're in your late 30s now? I think I am. Well, now I'm 37. So you've so that's the you've crossed the threshold. I think I've crossed the threshold. When I was 36, I I think I was still safely Mid, in my yeah. 
mid thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I am 37. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I'm in my late thirties. Hmm. It happens. Wow. I feel fine about it. I've liked okay. my thirties. I mean, except for your back that you strained, but <sighs> dude, like <laughs> this cold, you know, and so I'm sneezing and I feel, I mostly feel fine. You know, it was one of those things where like the feeling crummy part, I kind of speed run ran through and um, mm-hmm. I had like 24 hours where I was like, I feel gross. Mm-hmm. And then I've had like, many more hours than that where I sound gross (laughs) and am conscious of that. And I have been sneezing quite a bit, although I will say batten a thousand in terms of muting myself on this podcast (laughs) when I've had to cough or sneeze. So I just jinxed myself there, but um, (laughs) yeah, uh, sneezing, sneezing, sneezing. Um, You know, I've had travel lately. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very busy time and working a lot, had a lot to do. And so probably not um, setting my body up for success. And then I sneezed and I was like, wow, Mm -hmm. I feel that sneeze in several vertebrae. Um, (laughs) And it's not the first time I've had that happen in my 30s, but it is the first time I've had it happen in my late 30s. So here we are. (laughs) Yeah, well, you gotta, you gotta pace yourself with uh, when it comes to like, I'm, I'm old now and, and I have aches in my bones because, uh, you know, hopefully you're going to get a lot older than you currently are. Way worse than I do now, you know. And you'll be looking back and you'll be thinking, oh, how I long for, for late 30s Meg. Right and, right and how yeah. I felt then. Yeah. So you know, I always imagine if uh, someone in their 30s is is uh, talking about feeling their age, then yeah. someone listening in their 50s or 60s or 70s right. or 80s is uh, thinking, "Oh, you sweet summer child, just wait." Oh right? yeah, totally. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I I don't mean to say that it is as bad as it will inevitably get. <laughs> right. Simply that it is. The worst it has ever been for me personally. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel fine generally, but yeah, it is but, humbling. You know, mm-hmm. you're just really what it says is that you you have to take care of yourself. You can't mm-hmm. get away with what you could when you were younger. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I think that's instructive. You want to yeah. be able to move around comfortably uh, as you age as yeah. best you can, which is why you should stretch. <laughs> I won't. I won't sink to that level. I won't engage. Some in this of us are trying again. to be swole, Ben. <laughs> We're just trying to be able to touch our little toes. <laughs> well, I guess uh, any indication of aging—it's a reminder that you might one day die, which uh, Buck Showalter, of course, reminded us of as well. I think there is quite a large leap between knowing Tuesday's probable starter and knowing when you're yeah. going to die. There's a, a distinction between those things, and I can understand why. You would want to know the, the the latter and not the former, or the former or the latter. I forget yeah. what order I said those things in. But you know, there's some utility to say a reporter knowing who's going right. to start Tuesday's game. There might not be to knowing when you're going to die. I mean, there are a lot of stories about uh, whether you would want to know that or not. Right. But it's a little bit of a different calculus than hey, who's starting on Tuesday? I think that when you've you've been around as long as Buck has, and you've you know, how many press conferences, post-game pressers um, Mm -hmm. has Buck done in his career? So many, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I get that things aren't going well for your team. I imagine that his situation feels precarious um, and that he is not enjoying that feeling because who among us does, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't make people feel bad for doing their job. Like, you know, we got to ask that question. It's like completely reasonable question 
to mm-hmm. ask, right? Like if you're interpreting the who is your Tuesday starter question as something of a like a gotcha, mm-hmm. then Buck, I'm sorry, sir, but you know, your problems run deeper than that question. You know, yeah, if that's, that's a, a gotcha, you're in you're in rough shape. He didn't little, say it was a gotcha to be clear. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's sort of the vibe of that. No, he quote, just like, equated it you? to to ask to wanting to know when you're yeah. gonna die. That's all. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, I mean, like I, I saw that quote and I was like, Buck. You've been listening to Effectively Wild, my guy? Like, that that has a, yeah. you know, the, hopefully we aren't always that confrontational, but mm-hmm. the, the general thrust of that quote feels like it yes. should be on a mug with our logo on it. Yes. There, Basically there's a, is. A, a world where I guess we would not know who was starting, and that would be a, a mystery, and probably a, in earlier eras uh, it would have been sure. more difficult to ascertain who was starting, and you would have had to check the newspaper, and maybe you would not have known. I mean, that could just be the convention, right? It, it varies by sport, like how transparent teams are with the media when it comes to injuries and availability, and and the convention in baseball is that you know we we get pretty decent info, right? I mean, we certainly don't get everything. We we don't get Steve Cohen giving it to us straight in every case, right? but sometimes uh, teams hide injuries or players hide injuries or we just don't get the full story there. But usually we know who's going to start the next day unless you have some serious rotation issues and then it's understandable because the team itself may not know who's going to start the next day. But we do kind of take for granted that, uh, hey, if I'm planning out what games I want to watch or attend, then it would be nice to know who's actually pitching. And uh, I think that probably serves everyone in the situation to know that, including your your fans, your your spectators, your audience, the people you're putting on this show for. They want to know what they can expect to see. So I think that uh, system serves us all well. And in in the bygone days where you had to open the paper to see who the starter was, how did they know? They asked the question. <laughs> right. They were like, hey, yes. you know, Buck. Who's starting mm-hmm. for you on Tuesday? Yes. That's how they found out, Ben. They asked the sure. question, like reporters do. I got an answer, by the way, to the question you tossed off about when the last time someone had a 160 mm. WRC plus with an isolated power wow. below 100. In episode Stab Blast. <laughs> yeah. It happened one time in 1899. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Among players with at least 500 plate appearances in a season, which Arias does not have yet, and by the time he gets there, he may not satisfy these conditions either. But sure. But the only time it happened, evidently, is John McGraw, the future Hall of Fame manager for the 1899 Orioles. He had a 178 WRC plus. Wow. In fact, he batted 391, wow. 547. 446. He walked 23% of the time and he had an isolated power of 55. And that is the only time a major leaguer has done it with at least 500 plate appearances in a season. Other guys like dead ball era guys came close, uh, Eddie Collins and Nap Lajouet and Tris Speaker, et cetera. But, but yeah, it has not been done except for that one time. So (laughs) I don't think Arise is going to do it, but, but he's, he's doing it so far. So it's pretty extraordinary. Wow. So I, I identified an actual fun fact. Yes, you did. Yeah. Wow. Or, or it could, could become one, I suppose. Could become one. A potential mm-hmm. fun fact. Mm-hmm. A, a, a nascent fun fact. Right. An embryonic 
Yes, fact. yes. So a couple other things. Uh, we've met some interesting major leaguers in recent days. Some are top prospects. The Orioles just, they have a boundless reserve, seemingly, of of top position player prospects. For a while there, it was like uh, the Orioles have uh, lots of interesting pitching. Now it's just like endless, endless waves of uh, position player prospects where it's like too many to call up all at once. And so Jordan Westberg is the most recent arrival. I don't know how they have room for more good infielders. It seemed like they already had too many, much like the Reds do. But now it's, I mean, you know, you have Jackson Holiday behind him and you have Kesten Hurstad. And wait, did I say that wrong? Kesten Hurstad? Kesten. Kesten. Heston. Heston. Heston Kurstad and Colton Kowser, right? <laughs> I, I, I think you should leave it in yeah, so that so I can apologize for me <laughs> setting you up for that because I have gone on and on about Connors with Kate. <laughs> yeah, that was why I screwed it up. <laughs> I am impressed by just how many waves of great, talented position pro- player prospects they have, some of whom are on the cusp of the majors and some of whom are a bit further away, though they seem to look major league ready already. But that's not the type of player we we typically devote a lot of time to on a media major leaguer segment, for instance. Not that this is one officially, but I did tell everyone in the outro to the last episode, hey, if you're watching on Saturday, the Padres are calling up a knuckleballer. And they did, Matt Waldron. And I tuned in to see that game because I was super excited about the knuckleballer, the first true knuckleballer, not position player pitcher, not someone messing around, but an actual pitcher who throws a knuckleball. First one in the majors for a couple seasons since our former podcast guest, Mickey Janis. And I got to say, I was a little disappointed to learn that Matt Waldron is is a part-timer. He's a part-time knuckleballer. He, he, I don't, can you even call him a knuckle? I like, I, I guess you can call him a knuckleballer. He throws one, but it's not his bread and butter. It's not his primary pitch. You know, if I say so-and-so is a knuckleballer, when I read the Padres are calling up a knuckleballer, I assumed that that meant that the knuckleball was his primary pitch, that, you know, he's going to throw a knuckler and then he's going to throw a get-me-over fastball. And there are plenty of examples throughout baseball history of players for whom a knuckleball was a, a secondary or tertiary or supplementary pitch, right? It was just part of the mix, something they threw every now and then. But I was a little disappointed. Like, I guess beggars can't be choosers when it comes to big league knuckleballs at this point. You know, it seemed like they might even be extinct. They're certainly severely endangered. And so to have someone come up and throw, what did he throw? 13 of them, I think, in 62 pitches, something like that. So, you know, a a distinct minority of the pitches that he throws. But when he threw them, you know, they did what an knuckleball is supposed to do. And we got gifts of them barely rotating, right? It's it's sort of a, an R.A. Dickey speed knuckleball, not an R.A. Dickey quality knuckleball necessarily, but it's like low 80s, which is a, a little faster than I'd like. I like a, a slower knuckleball that you have some time to admire on its way to the plate. So Jay Jaffe wrote about him for fan graphs and he found that, you know, he's been throwing a knuckler, messing around with a knuckler since Little League. So he's not like a knuckler come lately. He's he's had this in his back pocket for a while, although I guess he wasn't really 
throwing it regularly until a couple of years ago when he was uh, toying around with it. And then they encouraged him to throw it. And I guess it was maybe his primary pitch initially. And then last season, according to what Jake could find, he only threw it 9% of the time. This season, he's been throwing it in the minors like 22% of the time. And he's been hit pretty hard. So he's 26. That would be young in the life of a full-time knuckleballer. I'm happy to have any kind of knuckleballer back. I'm just saying when I tuned in and I did not see knuckleballs immediately, I felt like I I had been lied to. I had not actually, but I I had just not determined all of the information that I should have had going into this game. I wanted more knuckleballs than we actually got. I love that you're like, Meg doesn't like prop comedy, and I don't appreciate people who don't commit to the bit, okay? (laughs) Like, if you're going to do it, go and do it the whole way. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, like, but Ben, baby steps, right? Yes. Like, we had this this void. We had a a knuckleball void, Mm -hmm. and now we have less of a void, you know? We have a a smattering. We have the option. We might, and well, you would tune in to be like, I'm going to throw it. So Mm -hmm. it's just, we can make room in our hearts for... Yeah. A dabbler, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. You know? Yes. And he pitched okay. He gave up two runs, gave up a couple solo shots and four and two thirds. And he was just a spot start. He got optioned, but he did all right. It was a credible performance, uh, FIP aside, and he will hopefully be back at some point. And things aren't going that great for him in the minors, throwing not enough knuckleballs in my mind. So perhaps he will ramp up the knuckleball usage at, at some point. But yeah, I'm glad we we broke the drought, right? There was a knuckleballer back in the big leagues, at least for one day and at least for 13 pitches. Also, this weekend, just a follow-up, I think on episode 1841, I did a stat blast about teams that won series despite being outscored. So like the worst run differentials in a, a series where you won. And this weekend, I think the Rockies made that stat blast obsolete or out of date because they took a series from the Angels in which they were outscored by 20 runs in total, right? So Sarah Langs had the stat, second team all time to win a series of any length with a run differential of negative 20 or worse, joining the Louisville Colonels, who in June 1897 versus the Chicago Colts won two out of three, despite being outscored 45 to 22. So I guess that was kind of angelsy because they had that extraordinary game where They were the first major league team to, what, score 20 runs in the span of two innings, and they just uh, totally trounced the Rockies, despite Shohei Otani going one for seven, which was weird. You'd think if the Angels had an outburst like that, that Otani would be a central figure, and he was not in that one game. But they won 25 to one, and yet... They lost the preceding game 7-4, to and they lost the subsequent game 4-3. to So they ended up, I, I guess, I don't know if that's like a Pyrrhic victory from the Rockies' perspective or what, but that's one of those cases where you wish you could spread those runs out, distribute them a little more evenly maybe, and take the series instead of that single game. I think that was remarked upon on the broadcast even yeah. where, you know, Canning's going back out there for his like fourth inning of work and they were like, I'm sure the other starters who were in the dugout today are wishing they'd save some runs. And mm-hmm. I was like, Yeah, they probably are. Yep. They probably are wishing that. It mm-hmm. was um it was wild mm-hmm. to see. And the contrast was so 
stark, right? Because you're you're like, it's Coors. Like, crazy, crazy things can happen there. Mm-hmm. But it's funny to have that happen versus what the Rockies were able to do, right? For yeah. some reason, I envision both sides engaged in a, a you know, an explosion of runs, which, you know, that doesn't happen very often, but it's just like, uh, it was a, you know, land of contrast kind of a game. Yeah, it was. I do appreciate that the Angels are kind of, they're, they're kind of going for it. I mean, you know, they they kind of went for it over the offseason and they're bringing in reinforcements. Uh, it, it seemed like entering the season, they had a lot of infield depth. I remember on our preview pod, we were like, where are all these guys going to play? You know, and then David Fletcher the was hurt guys are. Yeah, in the minors. And then suddenly there were injuries and Gio Urshela, it seems like, is out for the season. And they're back to playing Velasquez and, you know, trying desperately to find someone to to start. And so... They go get a couple guys, you know, and they go get Mike Moustakis, like in the middle of that series from the Rockies, joins the Angels. And then they got Eduardo Escobar from the Mets, who was sort of made redundant by some of their young call-ups. But he's not bad, you know, like when it comes to replacement players, uh, you're pretty happy to go get Eduardo Escobar in the middle of the season when you're shorthanded. I saw that uh, he just became an American citizen, I believe. Yeah. So uh, congrats to him. and. Also, congrats to him on landing somewhere where there's a Fogo nearby, because we've talked about his affinity for Fogo, the Brazilian steakhouse. And there is one in Irvine, which is about a 20-minute drive from Angel Stadium. So he's set there. Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. I assume he was aware of that. He's probably been to every Fogo near a, a, a ballpark just as a visiting player, but... But I wonder, like, when his home Fogo changes, you know, like his home park, his home Fogo, like when he transfers teams and and one staff that that knows him so well from dining there constantly, like, do they contact the other Fogo? And is there like a, a transition team, like a handoff? You know, here's how Mr. Escobar likes his steak, et cetera, just because oh, he's such yeah. a frequent customer. I hope that there's some communication there. Yeah, is there a rewards program? For oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, he's a spokesperson. He's a valued customer. I just, I hope that he gets the personal touch at any FOGO he goes to. So it's uh, it's good that that worked out. We did check at one time when we first talked about this to see, like, were there FOGOs uh, close enough to every park? And, and there were some where there were not. So, you no know. Fogos. No So Which doesn't mean that there isn't a good Brazilian steakhouse, yeah, to be clear. But it's gotta be but Foco, he would have yeah. he'd have to branch out. Yeah, it's gotta be Foco yeah. power for him. So so lucky fortuitous for him. I don't know if he has a no trade clause or anything. I, I don't know the specifics of his contract or whether like the proximity to a Fogo would dictate the teams on his no trade list. Anyway, it, it could have been an uncomfortable situation for him, but uh, it's a decent landing spot. And also I had an insight. If you can call it an insight, I'm not sure if this is actually insightful, but I had a realization about the Angels and about Trout and Otani. Really, it's just kind of a a comp, I guess, because I've marveled at the fact that Trout was the most fascinating player, the player I obsessed about and talked about and, and wrote about constantly and who seemed so extraordinary and unprecedented and was doing things no one had ever done. And then somehow he was supplanted by a teammate, which uh, what are the odds that anyone would supplant him and that he would be playing for the same team? I think the dynamic is sort of like the original Toy Story when 
Buzz Lightyear shows up and sort mm -hmm. of displaces Woody in Andy's affections. Mm. I'm Andy in this scenario, and you know yeah. I have my favorite companion, my my favorite toy. Not that Trout is my toy, or that uh, his sole purpose in life is to entertain me, but you know he was he was my fave. Like we went way back, right? And then suddenly. There was a, a new spectacle, you know, someone, a, a, a gift-wrapped box that gets unwrapped and, and suddenly it's uh, Shohei Otani who, much like Buzz Lightyear, I mean, you know, he can fly and he can shoot stuff or at least he thinks he can, right? Sh Shohei Otani actually can do the things that Buzz uh, merely thought he could do until he saw the commercial and realized that uh, he was not an actual space ranger. I'm not going to bring in the prequel, which is not really a prequel, but kind of is light year here. It's very confusing to the canon. But the point is that, like, <laughs> suddenly there was uh, this new sexy toy who was, like, yeah. attracting Andy's attention. And Woody was kind of left, you know, to fall by the wayside. And, and yeah. Woody was suddenly worried about, like, is Andy going to bring me to the restaurant? And suddenly he's sabotaging yeah. Buzz. And I don't think any of that has gone on. Like, do you think there's ever been a moment where Trout felt any kind of envy, jealousy, resentment toward Otani? Like, hey, I was the big dog. I was the big man on campus. I was the consensus best player in baseball. Suddenly, Shohei Otani shows up and he's still in the spotlight on my own team. And he's striking me out in the WBC championship game. Like, do you think there any glimmer, certainly no, no outward hint of any sort of friction at all. It seems like they get along great and they're always complimentary toward each other. But like, you know, Trout, who seems fairly laid back, you know, from what we can tell, but to get to that level and to be as good as he is, like he's obviously driven and, and super competitive. So when Buzz Lightyear shows up and you're Woody, like, can you not feel some slight spark of, hey, I used to be Andy's favorite toy and now I'm not? Well, I'm sure that there have been idle moments where he has experienced that. But I think that the very um, uh, sort of instinct that might otherwise uh, lead him to feel like a more intense uh, jealousy, uh, uh, sustained jealousy, is the one that probably saved him from it. Because I, I think Mike Trout really wants to win, yes. you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that the experience he has likely had, I mean, he's probably had frustration more than anything else because even with Otani, they haven't been able to break through, uh, at least uh, so far. But I would imagine that, you know, it's relief more than anything. Like, I don't have to shoulder this mm -hmm. by myself. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, not that... Otani's sort of an interesting mix when you think about his seeming desire to be the face of the game because we don't hear a lot about his like personal life. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think that he is interested in being, I don't know if I, I'm going to draw the right distinction here. Like, I think that he wants to be the face of the game. I don't think that he wants to be a celebrity in the sense of like us knowing like who he's dating, right. you know, where he mm -hmm. goes on vacation. Like he doesn't seem interested in that, but he does seem interested in being a, a presence within the game and without it uh, in terms of the broader culture. So 
that might also contribute to to Trout's sense of relief because, you know, while we're all busy, like, gawking at New Balance commercials or whatever, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, Mike Trout just gets to think about the weather and hang out with his wife, which seems to be <laughs> right. what he wants to do when he's not playing baseball. So yeah. I'm sure he's had moments within the context of, you know, the the arrival of Otani within sort of grappling with his own slow maturation slash decline as a player, you know, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. I bet the the overwhelming feeling is one of relief and then frustration, but not at Otani, at the rest of them, you know? Yeah, at himself for signing a super long extension to be an angel forever. Uh, I don't know that he actually regrets that, but <laughs> if he really wanted to to win top priority, it's it's not working out so well so far. But yes, it's like in Toy Story when eventually Woody and Buzz are on the same page and they realize that their purpose in life is to entertain Andy, right? And right. that they can both do that and they can do it together and more effectively together than apart. And Trout and Otani, they're both trying to win games and they're both trying to make the playoffs. And so if they pull it in the same direction and they're both great, then that furthers that goal for for both of them. Yeah. And also, how can you resent Shohei Otani? Because even if you could somehow resent his talent, it's tough to resent him as a person, right? Because he doesn't, he didn't come in hot like Buzz Lightyear kind of did, you know, like, I mean. You're really, speaking of being committed to the vet. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he uh, he didn't come in and say like, well, I'm, I'm the leader now. Like, you know, this was Trout's team. Now it's Shohei's team. No, like, you know, he, he came in and was uh, very polite and deferential and respectful of, of everyone as he always seems to be. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that I feel like if he were just – a hitter, just a position player, and he were better than Trout, then maybe that would enhance the competitiveness. But sure. it's like he's he's in a different classification altogether. Yeah. You know, like he's not yeah. he's not a normal player who's just better than another normal player who happens to be really great at being a normal player. Like he is entirely unique. He is, you know, like Buzz if he actually could fly. Like he's he's just on another plane where like Mike Trout never even considered maybe I could be one of the best pitchers in baseball too. I mean, I don't know if he ever aspired to that. He certainly never thought he could do that. So it's almost just like such a different sphere of competition that you almost have to be like, well, that guy's just, I mean, you know, we're we're not even quite in the same category. He's a two-way player. I'm an amazing one-way player. But he is just doing an entirely different thing. So in that sense, uh, we're not direct competitors. No one is directly competing with him. There's enough distance to to let yourself not feel threatened, particularly since if Otani wasn't pitching, he'd likely be in the outfield with yes. Trout. And so that might you know, cause some friction. But I think it's probably fine. They both seem, again, like it's hard for us to really know, right? Because we don't know them, but they don't seem to have exhibited evidence of of friction. They no. seem like pretty even keeled guys, the the two of them. Yes. So I I think it's probably fine. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you have more to say about Toy Story, <laughs> well, at the end of the movie, they're getting along <laughs> great, and <laughs> Andy gets a dachshund. 
And yeah. then they're both worried about the dachshund, which, uh, yeah. again, I mean, I have a dachshund and love my dachshund, but also love Trout and Otani. So there's room in, in my life for all of them and in Andy's life for, for all of them, at least until he grows up. But that's another Toy Story. Man, yeah, they just get... Um they just get sadder from, <laughs> they from the first one. Yeah, they really you do. Know? Yeah, just a couple last observations. Rob Maines wrote something at Baseball Prospectus uh, following up on something Louis Paulus had written on his newsletter. Just uh, looking at the fact that it does seem like the shift ban or suppression or whatever we're calling it has actually kind of backfired in a sense. Like it, it worked in the sense that it did raise BABIP a bit at least on pulled grounders, right? And for lefties, et cetera, if you do some splits and subdivisions there, it, it has had the effect that you would think that it would have had and that it was supposed to have and intended to have. But it has backfired in the sense that, and Joe Sheehan predicted this. I mean, this was not something that was totally unforeseeable. I think we talked about it before this rule was put in place. But because it kind of made life a little easier for the players who would pull a lot of balls into the shift, those players are now playing more. They're just getting more playing time. And thus, those players who tended to be high strikeout guys, mm. they're in the lineup more regularly striking out a whole lot. And that seems to be contributing to the rise in strikeout rate. So if the goal was to, say, produce more singles, that's not really happening because, like, more balls in play are becoming singles, but also as a total percentage of hits, singles are down just because the ball's more lively, there are more homers being hit, but also, like, singles per game is not really up, and it's because there are fewer balls in play because there are more strikeouts, which seems like it is a byproduct of the fact that they basically bailed out the hitters who were most vulnerable to the shift. They said, uh, no, you don't have to worry about trying to hit the ball the other way or whatever. Not that that was easy to do. Now we will just kind of, uh, you know, we'll we'll forgive your loans here, I guess. Like, we'll we'll sort of, you know take away this thing that was doing you damage and therefore your teams will stick you in the lineup and you will do what you always used to do, which is strike out a lot. And maybe you will double down on that because now you have less reason not to. And the net effect is that there just are not really more singles and because there are fewer balls in play to begin with. So that seems to be what's, what's happening here. It's like it worked in one way, but it also had the opposite of the intended effect in another way. And the net effect is basically nothing or just more strikeouts. So my ambivalence about this rule or resistance to this rule, I have not had to eat crow or, or change my mind on this one thus far. I'm still, you know, like it's not actively bothering me from day to day the way that I worried that it would but I still don't really like it and don't think it really did what it was designed to do other than, I guess, sometimes relieving you of the disappointment of seeing a ball that off the bat you thought might sneak through and didn't used to and now does. I wonder if there are pitchers who are like, oh man, I was wrong all along. Bring it back. Bring yeah. it back. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, so Rob Manfred, the man who spearheaded those rules changes, he also recently 
gave an interview. Now that is uh, always a, a scary preface to to anything. Rob Manfred making a public comment, but he made a, a comment in a Time Magazine interview when Time Magazine named MLB like one of the titans of industry or whatever, like just uh, one what? of the yeah, because uh, like the hundred most influential companies, Major League Baseball, and it was up there with like a, a bunch of giant companies, I guess, largely because the rules changes were implemented, right? So they interviewed Manfred for this story and they asked him if he had any regrets. And he mentioned a a few things. Uh, He said, it's probably a longer list than just one thing. There are some decisions that I'd like to have back. There's no question about that. He said, some of the decisions surrounding the Houston situation would like to have Mm. those back. He said he'd like to take back the comment he made about the World Series trophy and the hunk of metal, et cetera. So there was a, a follow-up about the sign-stealing scandal. What do you regret about that? He said, I'm not sure that I would have approached it with giving players immunity. Once we gave players immunity, it puts you in a box as to what exactly you were going to do in terms of punishment. I might have gone about the investigative process without that grant of immunity and see where it takes us, starting with I'm not going to punish anybody, maybe not my best decision ever. So this got a lot of headlines, you know, that were framed as like Rob Manfred says he may have messed up by not punishing the Astros players or maybe said that he actually did definitely say that he did that, which I guess isn't quite what he said, but close enough. And you could say, okay, this is humility. He is uh, owning up to possibly a, a mistake. Like we talked about this a lot at the time and the pluses and minuses of the way he went about it and They didn't punish the players because by granting immunity, he was able to find out some things that maybe would have been more difficult to find out if he had gone about it differently. And, you know, would he have been able to punish them or would the Players Association have pushed back on that? Although in that case, maybe the Players Association would have been blamed from a PR perspective for defending those players as opposed to Manfred being blamed for not punishing them. Maybe that's what he regrets more than anything. I don't know. But... On the one hand, you might say, okay, it's it's good, it's positive when you can revisit decisions you've made and say, maybe I could have gone about that differently and, and not just saying I never screwed up and everything I do is wonderful and I'm infallible. And it sort of humanizes a, a person, I, I guess, to be self-deprecating or to own up to their flaws. On the other hand, I wonder <laughs> <laughs> whether it's good for baseball for him to have said this. Right. Because it did then open up just another round of recriminations and dissatisfaction about how that was handled or how he handled it, maybe how it had to be handled. Like, what good does it do, I guess, for Rob Manfred for baseball to come out and say, huh, maybe we should have punished those players after all. Like, maybe we should have stripped that title from them. Hmm. Just because that conversation is ongoing, it hasn't died down for several years. It was never going to, really, while this lingered in living memory. But since people are still sort of sore about that, maybe it's better for him to maintain, like, that's the only way it could have happened. You know, sorry, like, it, it had to be this way than for him to come out and maybe humanize himself, but then also be like, yeah, maybe we could have punished those players. Like, because then that makes everyone kind of double down on, gosh, they should have been punished. And so it it's up to us to continue to give them grief for that, which, which fine, but you know, it, it 
maybe opens up old wounds or makes it harder for those wounds to scab over if you're saying, I regret how I handled that. It's tricky because it's like, I want to evaluate like the truth value of what he's saying versus like the the strategic piece of it. Mm-hmm. It's hard for us to know how different the investigation would have been without the participation of players. Mm-hmm. So maybe they would have been able to arrive at the exact same like level of detail and they would have gotten their arms around the totality of the scheme mm-hmm. without the participation of players, but it's hard for us to know that. So there's that piece of it. It did strike me as it's hard for it to feel humble from him because it mostly just seemed self-serving. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that there's probably a version of the commissioner who is a better communicator and sort of more adept at navigating the politics of that moment, who is able to grant immunity for the purpose of having greater clarity into the scope of the scandal, but talk about it in a way that that reads differently than what what Manfred did. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if Manfred does all the says all the same stuff but leaves the hunk of metal comment aside, I think that we probably interpret that entire moment differently than we do now right Mm. so i don't know it's hard it's hard for me to to look back on it and sort of separate those things out but my sense of him in his comments here is less like it would have been good for the game and more it would have been better for me (laughs) 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 personally like i would have come away looking better in this situation than i did yeah and that's a very different like i don't well, it's not a project I need to like help advance, mm-hmm. you know, like I don't care about that part of it. I I want what's good for the sport. So it's hard for me to separate those things. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a version of the punishment for that where you grant immunity and, and still levy more stringent sort of punishment against the organization and come out ahead of where they did in terms of it feeling to people like it had been enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, Definitely, there are a lot of people who would like to have seen the individual players involved suspended, but I think retaining the World Series title is really what is, you know, still sticks in people's craw when Mm -hmm. they're upset about it. So, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. Yep. Lastly, I wonder whether we will see something like this happen for baseball. Have you followed the controversy in the NBA with Sham Sharania, who is uh, one of the big newsbreakers along with Woj, oh, yes. right? And he works for The Athletic, but he also works for FanDuel. And yeah. so before... Those, seems like, those things seem like they might be in conflict, don't they? <laughs> well, they did last week, right? When there was the NBA draft and he tweeted that Scoot Henderson, one of the players in the draft, was uh, gaining serious momentum at number two with the Charlotte Hornets. And that moved the betting odds for who was going to be drafted where, right? And so that was kind of complicated because on the one hand, his job for The Athletic, he's a newsbreaker. That's what he does. On the other hand, he moved the lines with his tweet, which I guess was somewhat suspect. I mean, he and Woj are are rivals and sort of snipe. And later on, Woj was like, yeah, that was never even being considered. Like, (laughs) he's not going to be drafted second. They never thought about that. So everyone's like, huh, this is not illegal. It's not really regulated. Like, there's nothing that says that he can't do this. But 
there certainly seems to be a conflict of interest there. If someone who's working for a gambling company and has this big platform can just move the lines by tweeting something that turns out to be erroneous, if you could just uh, do that. Now, if he did that all the time, then no one would trust his reports and they wouldn't move the lines, I guess. But if he were to do it or someone were to do it, just sprinkle in a red herring tweet every now and then for his gambling company that employs him so that they can make bank on those bets, right? There seems to be a a clear incentive to do that. So I guess this wouldn't happen probably in baseball the same way right now. I don't know if there's like an equally prominent baseball media member who works directly for a gambling betting company, right? I mean, many baseball media members uh, work for sites that have relationships with gambling companies, but being directly employed by one one is a little bit different. And obviously, like, the MLB draft is not (laughs) such a big deal that uh, you're getting tons of, of betting action on that one probably compared to the NBA draft. So... I don't know that we could see exactly the same situation happen there, but could something like that happen down the road in the baseball sphere? I think without some proactive rules around it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's a big problem. I think that like it's something that if you're certainly if you're a, a reader of one of these sites, you want to keep in mind, and if you're, you know, an editor, having very clear. Uh, rules around this stuff is pretty important because yeah, there's there's a potential for a huge conflict of interest, mm-hmm. right? There's the and it kind of takes on a bunch of different flavors, right? Like there's the self enrichment potential conflict, right? Mm, Where yeah. you could, as a person who has inside information, whether you're you know a prospect analyst or a beat right. writer, that could or, potentially apply to baseball, right? You know, right? Where yeah. it's like you could, in theory get inside information, place bets based on that and be ahead of, you know, announcements that end Mm -hmm. up moving the lines or what have you. So there's like that piece of it. And then, yeah, when you're like directly employed by a gambling site and you are meant to break news and, you know, inform your readership as an aside on behalf of a, a site that I think has some, or in the past has had some gambling affiliations. Like it's just a, it's a really tricky thing, and the league has put itself in a position where they don't have a moral ground to stand on when it comes to this stuff because they have official sports betting partners too, and they're putting lines on every broadcast or, you know, at least referencing them on a lot of them. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're inviting members of, you know, DraftKings or FanDuel to participate in official league events and stuff like that. So, yeah, like, it's a it's a huge potential problem. This is part of why everyone... Not everyone. This is part of why I was so uncomfortable with the the enterprise because you set yourself up for insider trading or at least the appearance of it. I don't know if he, you know, was trying to manipulate the lines by reporting something that was wrong. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to try. He's just in a position where he could do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the announcement of news can have an effect on betting markets even without a partnership or some association, right? Mm -hmm. And so... That reality is always is always present, but it feels really different when you have a direct relationship mm-hmm. with a sports book. So right. I don't I don't know, man. Like I just think that I know a lot of people they like sports betting, they enjoy it. If you're able to do it in a way that you know is within your means and feels fun to you, like that's fine. As we've said multiple times on this podcast, like it's not the way I relate to the sport, but 
if you're able to do that in a way that isn't destructive. Like, you know, you're a grown up, you get to pick what dumb stuff you spend money on. That's part of what being an adult is, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think that it's useful to keep in mind that like there are not really firm guidelines in place for this kind of thing, at least not that are enforced by any body that has the ability to do something about it. And so you just want to go in eyes open that like it is always stacked against you. <laughs> it's just, and this is just one more way that that's true. Yeah. Um, and I do think that it would be to the benefit of, you know, when we talk about baseball specifically, like be to the benefit of the BBWA to put a policy in place around this stuff. And, you know, I don't think that we have gambling specific outlets in the association. And I know that both the association and the league have been resistant to that, but like there should be a policy about this stuff because the opportunity for abuse is, is there. And I'd like to think that it's not going to happen, but mm -hmm. you know, right. I, <laughs> it's like, what is that? Another football for me to kick, Lucy? <laughs> yeah. FanDuel, for what it's worth, said FanDuel is not privy to any news that Shams breaks on his uh -huh. platforms, which sure. may well be true. You know, I, I'd venture to say it's it, probably true, but sure. but we wouldn't know if it weren't true. So right. <laughs> and it might not be true in the case of another person or another company. So, yeah, you're tempting fate there. All right. I will end with the Future Blast, which comes mm. to us from Rick Wilbur, an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the dean of science fiction baseball. This comes from Rick and from 2025. He writes, smart glasses and a VR future. David Hamilton's 122 stolen bases was the most remarkable performance of the 2025 season, and it helped the Red Sox return to some semblance of glory, though they stumbled against the Rays in the division series, and the Rays in turn stumbled against the Dodgers yet again in the World Series as the ageless Clayton Kershaw threw a no-hitter in the sixth game to clinch the series. All right. Happy to have some more postseason success from Clayton. The 2025 season was as notable for its technology as its play on the field. The Giants just up the road from Silicon Valley used branded smart glasses to add an extra dimension to the fan experience. Fans wearing the glasses could see relevant statistics come up in the right corner of their view when they looked at an individual player. And with the automatic 10-second save, they could relive the home run or that splendid double play to end the game, sending their saves to social media. Improved versions of the smart glasses promise to zoom in on key players with high-definition optics, instant stat updates, and more. The glasses were a hit in Oracle Park, and by the time postseason play rolled around, half the teams had issued their own smart glasses. Brave new world. Brave new world, indeed. Can't wait for the future blast when we get to some horrendous gambling scandal. I'm sure it's coming one of these days, but just yeah. smart glasses for now. Well, after we finished recording, Buzz Otani, Shohei Lightyear, struck out 10 over six and a third one-run innings, the one allowed by a reliever, and also hit two home runs, the second after having a cracked fingernail that caused him to be removed from the mound to infinity and beyond. Or if not quite infinity, then almost one win above replacement in a single game. According to the Fangraphs live leaderboards I'm looking at, he was worth 0.4 war as a hitter, which was more than any other hitter on Tuesday, and also 0.4 war as a pitcher, 
which tied Kevin Gossman for the most war of any pitcher on Tuesday. I don't really know what the record for war in one game is, or the modern record, at least. It's not an easy stat to look up for all years for single games. Sam wrote an article for ESPN some years ago where he looked at baseball reference daily logs of war and sort of backed into single game war calculations and found that, say, Scooter Jeanette's four homer game was worth something like 0.73 war, and that was the highest he found. So Shohei just about testing the practical limit in modern baseball. And when he was interviewed on the sideline after the game, he said, I wish I could have finished that seventh inning. After he hit the first home run, he couldn't even go through the full home run celebration because he had to get back on the mound right after that. So he just sort of waved it away, acknowledged the applause and the congratulations, and then started getting ready to pitch again. He may not have time to pause and celebrate what he's doing, but we should take that time. You can take the time to support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Gary Egan, Jack Caldwell, Peter Shoemaker, Tex Paisley, and NPC. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the wonderful Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, as well as access to monthly bonus episodes, one of which we will be recording and releasing this week, plus playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and expedited email answers and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site and anyone and everyone can send us questions and comments via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also send us a theme song if you want us to add your theme song to our regular intro and outro rotation. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. If baseball were different, how different would it be? Players growing third arms and infield in the tree. Anything is fair game, even Kike's dirty pants. And maybe if you're lucky, we'll co-call by the chance. You never know precisely where it's gonna go. By definition, Effectively wild